All right. Good morning, Trinity Church. It is a great Sunday to be together, to worship, to dive into God's Word. That's what we're going to do right now. My name is Hilke. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, yeah, let's do it. A couple things you should know about me, too. First of all, it's my birthday. Second thing is... Um, I couldn't resist. Second thing is this. Um, I don't like waiting. I don't like waiting. I don't like waiting at the grocery store line because I have this unique ability to pick the slowest one. I look, I kind of scope out the landscape, especially Costco. It's like, you got to really choose wisely there. And um, apparently I don't do that very well. In traffic, thankfully I only live like seven minutes away from work, but um, when I do travel the freeways, oh man, traffic, I just... I'm like, oh, I think that lane over there is going a little faster. So I veer over there, and sure enough, it slows down, and it's taking even longer. Um, Lines, whatever it is, or a package. You order something on Amazon, and it's supposed to be prime, yet somehow it takes four days. You're like, how could this be? You know, like this waiting game, it's just so tough. And today, we're talking about waiting. This morning, we're talking about waiting not just four days because your prime package isn't coming in two days. We're waiting a very long time. We're waiting for Jesus to return. And the wait's been a pretty long time thus far. And it seems like Jesus knew that that was indeed going to be the case. In a number of his teachings, he seems to indicate, it might be a while, but you better be ready. You better be ready for his coming. And that's exactly what we're talking about this morning. We're in a series on the parables. And and Jesus was an amazing storyteller. And and his stories, you know, used elements of of the current day and culture and, and, and used them to drive home a point. And he did that just so well, a masterful storyteller. So <coughs> this summer, <coughs> pardon me, we're looking at a number of parables and see what is Jesus saying? What is he saying to us this morning? There's, um, it's important to understand some of the layers to these stories that Jesus is telling. Because he's telling these stories in a specific time to a specific people. So we've we got to explore a little bit of the historical context, some of the literary, literary context. How does this all fit, fit together? So that we can understand these parables you know, in 3D or, or 4K, but just, just to have this absolute clarity. What is Jesus saying? And how should I live? This morning, we're, we're in Matthew chapter 25, and you can turn there in your Bibles if you'd like. If you don't have a Bible, I, I encourage you to download one on the App Store. Uh, Uversion is a wonderful Bible app to, to use to download. Uh, so Matthew 25, that's where we find ourselves this morning. We're not going to read just yet. Just put your finger there. Just hold your spot. Matthew 25. Um, imagine you are one of the 12 disciples, one of the originals, one of the 12 What a privilege. You've spent about three years with this Jesus. Learned so much. Experienced and seen so much. And just a couple days ago, man, was it exciting, wasn't it? 
Yeah, like when, when, when Jesus rode on a donkey and into Jerusalem and the people were just shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, salvation is here. You weren't even sure what exactly that all meant and what, what that meant for Jesus, but oh wow, it was, it was an exciting time. You'll never forget those moments. And then in the following day, Jesus got really mad. It was kind of awkward. You guys were at the temple. And then Jesus started just clearing out the temple, uh, clearing out the money changers, and because and, the temple was clearly being abused instead of a place of worship and prayer. And it got pretty heated. Earlier today, man, he was talking to some religious leaders, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, as they were called, and engaging in a dialogue. The, 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 the Sadducees and the Pharisees, so annoying, man. Those guys are a pain. Um, continued to ask him questions, questions about whether they should pay taxes and um, questions about various laws and about religious celebrations, about authority, about the afterlife. And, and Jesus each time would respond in such great wisdom. But each time he responded, he would expose the religious leaders. He would expose that, that they, they really did not understand the things of God at all. There was a huge void, a, few, a huge disconnect in their lives, and Jesus exposed them. That did not go over so well with the Pharisees. And then the dialogue turned into a diatribe, and Jesus just kind of just had it with, with the Pharisees and, and, and Sadducees. He begins to just, just unload these truth bombs and, and, and just, again, spotlights these religious leaders for the frauds that they truly were. He had some very strong words. But now, later today, you find yourselves at the Mound of Olives. We've been here quite a few times. It was an unusual kind of a regular spot for us all to gather. Jesus would do a significant amount of teaching just with the disciples there. It's a quiet place. You guys are all gathered around, but um, you seem to remember Jesus earlier today said something very strange. He said, you see this temple? It will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another, he said. So then you guys are like, man, what did he mean? So you ask, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Jesus kind of got into a more comfortable position, shifted around a little bit. You could tell that this answer was going to take just a little while. And uh, you were right. And he began to explain that false teachers would come. False Christs would try and lead followers of Jesus astray. There would be wars, famine, and earthquakes before this coming. There would be persecution of followers of Jesus. And this temple that he referred to would be desecrated. It would, it would be defiled. And then finally, the Son of Man would come. The trumpet would sound 
the trumpet would sound and, and, and followers of Jesus would be with the Son of God forever. He wanted more details, but he didn't give any. Instead, he began to share in some more parables. He shared a parable of, a wise, of the wise and wicked servants. About also a parable about, about Jesus coming as a thief in the night. And then he told another parable in Matthew 25, verse 1. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, or bridesmaids, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took, took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the, the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It's amazing how much he can capture in a short story. And he starts off this story, the kingdom of heaven is like. Which is a really important phrase, especially for Matthew. So Matthew, it's in your notes. It's an expression Matthew uses to describe the mystery of the kingdom, the functioning of the kingdom. How is this kingdom supposed to take shape, especially as it relates to living in the present age? What do we do now in light of the kingdom and the king that we worship? How do we live now? And he explains, the kingdom of heaven is like 10 bridesmaids waiting for the bridegroom. The kingdom of God is a bit of a waiting game. It's going to take a while. But don't be caught unprepared. Don't slack off. Wait with eager anticipation because he is coming. The Lord Jesus is coming. So here's our now what. It's in your notes. Jesus is coming and we must live ready. Now, perhaps the most natural way to write that would have been, Jesus is coming and we must be ready. But with, with the emphasis on Matthew, on, on the, kingdom of, uh, the kingdom of heaven, pushing us and, and describing how we ought to live now in the present, I think this captured it better. That, that Jesus is coming and we must live ready in the way we live our lives, how we live this out before our king. Now, the summer generally is kind of wedding season. I don't know if you guys have weddings coming up this summer. Um, I, I do. I'm doing one in a couple of weeks here. And um, for some reason, weddings never start on time, right? So you, you have a wedding and everyone gets all dressed up. And of course, it's a summer wedding in like August. And it's like triple digits. So ladies, like, 
you know, their, their makeup is starting to turn into like an art project of like a four-year-old. Um, and, but, but you guys show up, it's at four o'clock, you get there early, more like, like 3.40, so you could roast a little longer, or because your wife wanted a good seat, aisle seat, you know, much preferred. Um, so you sit there, 3.40, you're just already like, oh my gosh, it's so hot. And then uh, it turns to four o'clock, nothing's happening. 4.05, I'm about to offer, like, I can do this wedding for you guys, like, let's get this going, like, no problem. Uh, 4.20, and finally, you know, the, the grandparents are escorted out, you're kind of thinking, why don't we just carry the lady and just, just, let's make this, you know, go along a little faster, or, uh, and at the end of it, you, you almost jump up for joy when the pastor says, you know, you may kiss the bride, you're like, yes! The hors d'oeuvres are coming, AC is coming, you know, water is coming, um, only to find out the reception is outside too. But um, by that time, maybe the sun has set. Weddings, you know, kind of maybe uh, test our patience a little bit. That really is nothing compared to a uh, Jewish first century wedding. Those are going to take a while. It's going to take a couple of days to get this whole thing celebrated properly. We don't know a ton of details, but we know enough that it's going to take a while. The bridesmaids was an incredible, uh, incredible honor to be asked to serve in this capacity. Um, but earlier that day of the wedding, that would have been helping the, the bridesmaid. At, uh, in my research, I found that uh, the bride would bathe, and I thought that was an excellent idea. Um, then the bridesmaids would help get her dressed in uh, the finest clothes the family could afford. Kind of had a royal flair, a royal flavor to it. Her hair would be braided, adorned with whatever you do with hair. And uh, just, just a lot of time would be invested in this preparation and to really have this royal flavor to, to the celebration. There was a lot of anticipation. They're going to look forward to this amazing party that would last a long time. But the bridesmaid would have been asked to, um, to provide light. As the, as the bridegroom would, would approach the feast, they would send out these, these bridesmaids to kind of lead the entourage to, to the celebration, and they needed light. So they would be given these torches, sticks tightly wrapped with cloth, and they would soak them in oil and light those puppies up. And then there'd be plenty of light and and, and celebration as this processional just approached, ready for this banquet, for the celebration. And it was going to be grand. It's going to be spectacular. It was was an honor to be asked to do this. Uh, Maybe some of you are wondering, like, okay, I, I get where we're at in the story. Where is the bride? I don't know. Um, The text doesn't say. So when the text doesn't say, we're not going to worry about it. Why is the bridegroom late? I don't know. The text doesn't say, so we're not going to worry about it. You see, when when we get into speculation, particularly when it comes to parables, speculation rarely leads to transformation. What God wants us to know, he has made clear. So that's what we're going to focus on. But it's clear from the text. He's more than a few minutes late. It's been hours. The bridesmaids are tired. So they doze off. They get a little sleepy. 
Which is not a statement of judgment, by the way, because both foolish and wise bridesmaids dozed, caught a few Z's. That was a good idea. The party would, would, would go on and on. And there, was, there was a lot of dancing ahead. I hate dancing, by the way. So um, that was for free. You can jot that down in your notes. But getting some rest was, was not a bad idea. But then, verse 6. But at midnight, or rather in the middle of the night, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. It was time. It was time for those 10 ladies to rush out to, to the, um, the, the wedding party that was approaching and to light up those torches and to start celebration, celebrating because it was time. But now the real difference between the sets of bridesmaids becomes evident. The wise, they grab their torches, soak them in more oil, light those puppies up, and they're good to go. And that was their job. That's what they were being asked to do. And they were faithful. The foolish bridesmaids grab their torches. They had the rags wrapped tightly. They looked the part. But they missed the oil. Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out, they said. But the foolish bridesmaids cannot rely on the preparedness of others. And Jesus here is highlighting individual accountability when it comes to you and God. Individual accountability. The foolish bridesmaids go out to buy more oil. But it's too late. When they get back, the door has been shut. They knock in verse 11, afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. I do not know you. All ten bridesmaids were excited. They were so excited about this party. But only five prepared. What do we make of this? Where do we go from here? Some have called these parables three-point parables because it's three main players. And each of these players kind of highlights a point with an overarching theme that we've captured in our now what. Again, the now what. Jesus is coming and we must live ready. So focusing on the bridegroom first then, we see that Jesus has delayed his coming but could return at any time. He could return at any time. You know what else could happen at any time? The big one. The big one could hit any time. I know living in Southern California, we're kind of used to this. We, we go about our business and we feel a little shaky shake. You're like, oh, we're good. And then you, get, you find out later, you know, it's 3.2. You're like, oh, that ain't nothing. We're all good. Um, and then you kind of live your life. The people, do you know? The big one is coming. Have you not heard? The big one is coming. It's been on the news. I've read about it in articles. The big one is coming. Let me ask you, are you ready? Is your family ready? Have you adequately prepared for the big one? Because it's coming. It could come at any moment. Let's not hope like right now, but... um, it could come. 
What have you done to prepare? Have you gone out to get like a 72-hour like preparation kit with food and all the necessary supplies? Have you come up with a game plan for your family? Where, where are you going to meet? Is there going to be a meeting spot? What are you, where are you going to go? What are you going to do when the big one hits? Are you prepared? Well, I'm not. I have not gone through the necessary steps to adequately prepare for the big one. Wouldn't you say that's a tad foolish? Look where we live. We have like a giant fault like two miles from here. Or not longer than that, but like that's not a good thing. And I'm not really prepared. I, I don't have that kit. I looked on Amazon. They sell them there. It's great. I'll probably pick one up soon. You should too. You got to have a plan. And in the same way, isn't that Jesus' point? Are you ready? I could come at any point, at any time. I could come. Are you ready for my arrival? From the wise bridesmaids, we learn this. Christ followers must live prepared and wait with eager anticipation for his return. Christ followers must live prepared and wait with eager anticipation for his return. That does not mean sitting around and just looking at the sky. I'm like, do you see him? Is he coming yet? Is that something? In fact, that, that was actually the temptation for some early churches uh, that Paul addressed in his letter to the Thessalonians. He's like, no, no, don't, don't just be sitting around for Jesus. Like, do something. Don't just do anything. Live and invest your lives for the kingdom. To live, pre- to, to live prepared to welcome the king is that you invest in his kingdom today. To invest our resources, our time, our money. Todd will highlight a parable later on in this series that, that illustrates that point. Living prepared looks like being a Jesus influence in our relational world, knowing that the king is coming. We want to make sure others are ready also for his arrival. Living prepared looks very different from pursuing the American dream. It's to pursue a kingdom dream. It looks very different from pursuing more stuff, more stuff to impress people we don't really like anyway. I truly believe that the American dream is incompatible with kingdom living. The two don't mix. A life marked by preparedness is one who seeks after his kingdom and his righteousness, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 6. His righteousness, his kingdom would be our number one priority in the way we order our lives and our pursuits, our dreams and hopes. Instead of idolizing account balances, promotions for influence, square footage, turning hobbies into idols, I truly am convinced that the biggest obstacle for followers of Jesus in the American church is our idolatry. So what's an idol? Look in your notes. 
It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination. Isn't that good language? Anything that absorbs my heart and my imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Those are strong words that should challenge us to evaluate. Tim Keller goes on to write about idolatry, about these idols, and he begins to kind of identify some. And uh, I'm going to read another, another passage, and it's kind of lengthy, but I think it's incredibly helpful to help us understand and to even help us find ourselves in some of the things that he's writing. And to be honest, it, it, is, it is challenging words. Because this will, this will challenge us. It, it challenges me in my discipleship, in the way I follow Jesus. He says this, counterfeit gods or idols come in structures. Sin in our hearts affects our basic motivational drives. Some people are strongly motivated by influence and power, while others are motivated by approval or appreciation. Some want emotional and physical comfort more than anything else. Others want security and the control of their environment. People with a deep idol of power do not mind being unpopular to gain influence. People who are most motivated by approval are the opposite. They'll gladly lose power and control as long as everyone thinks well of them. Each deep idol, power, approval, comfort, or control generates a different set of fears and hopes. Surface idols are, are things like money, spouse, children, through which our deep idols seek fulfillment. We're often superficial in the analysis of our idol structures. For example, money can be a surface idol that serves to satisfy more foundational influences. Some people want lots of money as a way to control their world and life, and such people usually don't spend much money and they live very modestly. Others want money for access to social circles and to make themselves beautiful and attractive. These people do spend their money on themselves in lavish ways. Other people want money because it gives them so much power over others. In every case, however, money idolatry slaves and distorts lives. Oh, the idols are powerful. And I'm not just looking at a crowd, I'm looking in the mirror how easily my heart is drawn away from seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. So how do we respond? He goes on. The only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeits God, for counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true one, the living God. He is the only one, if you find him, can truly fulfill you, and if you fail him, can truly forgive you. Amen. Jesus put it this way, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. And all these things, you don't have to worry about those things. I'll take care of the details. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. Be about the king's business. The foolish bridesmaids we encounter in verse 8 
It says, And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. This parable kind of has a sting to it. It doesn't feel terribly great at the end. It makes us think. It makes us reflect. The foolish bridesmaids show us this. When the end comes, it will be too late to undo the damage of neglect and hardened hearts. It will be too late to undo the damage of neglect and hardened hearts. Let me illustrate it this way. In a couple of weeks from today, uh, July 14th, there'll be a little over 100 of us showing up to this place with suitcases, pillows, and a bunch of gear, luggage, because our high school students will be uh, heading off to camp. Really fun. We're super excited going to Hume, San Diego for a week of camp. And um, if, uh, if you show up on July 14th with your suitcase, pillow, you checking you check in at our registration area with my assistant, Ruth, and she's kind of looking at the list like, what is going on? She calls me over, and then I have to say to you, depart from me. I never knew you into the lake of fire. No, I will, well, I'll say it's slightly nicer than that, but not a whole lot. Um, but because if you show up on July 14th with your pillow, I don't care. You're not going to camp. If you've got, I'm don't, but I have my sleeping bag. I don't care. Use your sleeping bag at home, but you're not going to camp. You're not prepared. You're not on the list. You're not going. Besides, you're 47 years old, and that's just weird. Okay? Um, so we don't want that. Now, our students, our high school students, oh, they've been preparing. They're not just on, on Sunday morning waking up like, oh, man, I got to get some stuff in my suitcase. No, that, that's been done days in advance. Our girls, no doubt, have been carefully selecting their outfits to coordinate. And, I mean, it's like a curated, like, packing adventure that is just carefully planned. And there is a lot of preparation that will go into this, no doubt. You can't just show up. You're not prepared. You're not going. The foolish girls seemed like they belonged. They were invited, they had the torch, but they were negligent, careless. They had no oil. They've all, there's all kinds of ideas on what the oil represents. I think it's just oil. They didn't have oil. They were not prepared. Bottom line. There was no excuse. So who, who exactly are these bridesmaids in the story? Here's the answer. When Jesus was sharing this parable, when he was telling this story, he was talking about religious Jews. It's the people he encountered day in and day out who thought they had it all together. The religious Jews, they they loved their synagogues. They loved their celebration. They loved their laws. They loved all the things having to do with their religion. But they had no relationship with God. They looked the part on the outside, 
but their hearts were far from him, far from God. Fast forward to our day. Who are these bridesmaids? First, it's religious people. There's a lot of religious people. They do all the right things. They know what to do in a, in, in a space like this. They, they know the songs. You may even be part of a small group. You check all the boxes. But you cannot rely on religious performance. You cannot rely on your religious heritage. Individual accountability. Someone put it this way, religion grates righteousness on a curve. Jesus grates righteousness on a cross. Religion makes God the boss and you the employee. Jesus makes God the father and you the son. Unless you are the son, Jesus will say, I do not know you. But I've read the Bible seven times. You are not my son. I do not know you. Don't settle for religion when you can have Jesus. The next group of people is spiritual people. You find that you have a broader view of God and spirituality. It's not as narrow. It's got fewer boundaries. It's not as confining. It's not as restricting. You find God in many places, in many people, and in many forms. That's just one problem. Jesus didn't see it that way. When he said, I am the way, the way, exclusive way. I am the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those words are terribly exclusive, terribly limiting. But if you would find yourself entering through Jesus, you too will be with the Father. You too will be found at the feast, at the celebration. Your broader view of spirituality, I know what you're looking for. And your broader view of spirituality, you have to even come admit this to yourself, is ultimately pretty unsatisfying. It leaves holes. It's incompatible with what you know to be true. What you're looking for is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is your path to the Father. There's all another category, good people. There's a lot of good people around. They're not particularly religious or spiritual. They're just really good people. They're great. They're nice, fun to hang out with. But even these good people have a huge problem that even their goodness, their niceties, do not measure up to what the Father expects. Perfect righteousness. Perfect rightness before God. And there's not a person in this room that can live up to that standard. That righteousness is only found in Jesus alone. So in closing, we have to ask ourselves, are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you prepared? Because Jesus says, watch therefore, 
for you know neither the day nor the hour. Or now what? Jesus is coming, and we must live ready. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity and its power to transform, to convict, to, uh, to speak words of grace. Lord, thank you for the grace of con- conviction. So Father, I pray for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that we would find ourselves living, actively living, ready to receive you when you come. That our lives would be marked by readiness as we engage the people in our relational worlds, warning them of what is coming. That we would invest our resources, our time, our very selves. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room who has not yet responded to your offer of salvation, would you move in their hearts even this morning? And if that's you this morning, I want to to challenge you. I want to implore you to respond to this Jesus, that you would find yourself ready and that Jesus, uh, that, that the Father would look at you and call you his child. And there's only one way that happens is going to the Father through the Son. You respond to this offer of salvation. We've outlined it in a very simple process we call the ABCs. It starts with A, admitting. Admitting that you are a sinner. A sinner in need of a Savior. A sinner who is hopeless to change your condition. You cannot do it. I cannot do it. There's not a person in this room that can change their sinner status. B, to believe that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, offering you the gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life. He paid for your sin once and for all as your substitute. And rising again the third day, proving that he was who he said he was, the Son of God. And see, choosing, choosing to follow this Jesus in a life of obedience, a life of commitment. Would you respond to this offer even this morning? You can do that quietly, sincerely in your heart. Or come up and pray with us after the service. Father God, we thank you for who you are. And I pray you would continue to challenge us to be to be ready, to be prepared, because the King is coming. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.